Good day, and welcome to Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. I'm Nancy Derringer, Communications Director for the CRC, and in this podcast, we will be looking at Michigan through a policy lens. We're interested in Michigan's past, present, and future, and our discussions here will be informed by our 101 years of experience doing nonpartisan, fact-based research on policy issues. We hope this podcast will serve as another way for the public to access our work, which is, as always, free and available to all. Check our website, crcmich.org. More on that at the end of the show. So here we are in February 2018, and if there is one story that has eclipsed all others in Michigan this year, it's the still unfolding tragedy at Michigan State University. Of course, most of our listeners probably know the outlines by now. Dr. Larry Nasser, an osteopath whose practice concentrated on gymnasts and other female athletes, spent years sexually assaulting them in the guise of treatment. Now, criminal activity isn't usually in the Research Council's wheelhouse, but as the debate around Nasser has concentrated on the decisions and activities of the MSU Board of Governors, that does intersect with what we do because we look at all sorts of governance. So I'm joined today by Eric Lufer, the council's president and an alumnus of Michigan State. So Eric, let's start by talking about how university governance and oversight is different in Michigan than in other states. Thank you, Nancy. So the the big differences that we see in Michigan uh, compared to other states, uh, about 48 of the 50 states, as I understand it, have a oversight board, a statewide uh, department or, or independent board that's meant to pull together all the higher education activities going on throughout the state and uh, and develop plans for who's going to be doing what to coordinate among the different campuses to rationalize what's being done. And we don't have any of that in Michigan. We have a whole bunch of independent universities all doing their own thing, all governed by their own boards. And to top that off, we independently elect three of those, the boards at the University of Michigan, Michigan State University, and Wayne State University. Uh, So the other boards for the other universities are appointed by the governor, but it still creates a whole lot of independence, a whole lot of autonomy for each university we see a lot of duplication in academic programs because of this. We see a whole lot of independent decision-making. Each university is the most important university in the eyes of their own board, in the eyes of their own alumni. And uh, the rationalization for how we should be doing higher education is lost. And I think what we've seen, uh, both with this case and in the bigger picture, the un- the the failure to fund higher education, to divert resources that we had historically be, been devoting to higher education to other things uh, has, is a result of, of our governance system. Okay. Um, we'll get into a little bit more about those inefficiencies as we go. Um, but maybe we could start by um, getting a little bit into the history of this. Why do three schools get democratically elected boards of governors, and the rest don't. Well, so this started with the University of Michigan, which had been here longer than we've been a state. And in 1850, there was a move um, to put into our state constitution at that time, the 1850 constitution, 
special provisions for the governance of that university um, to move it away from the role of the uh, the state superintendent of instruction, the role that the governor had played, and to give it some more autonomy. Uh, that carried forward, and Michigan State University was created shortly after that. And when those provisions were uh, put in place, there was a provisions for a state agricultural board that was to be independently elected. Uh, that created the Michigan Agricultural College, which soon became Michigan State University. And in ensuing constitutions, that was granted autonomy through an independently elected board. Along comes Wayne State uh, University a little bit later, and it just, I think, sort of piggybacked on what had already been pl in place for U of M and Wayne State. So the other boards, uh, the other universities, I think, are sort of, um, have never riven, risen to the prominence. We have had provisions um, in our Constitution for Eastern Michigan University, not called that in the Constitution, but a school for teaching teachers, if you will, um, said that we have to have that, but it didn't go into specifics on governance or where it should be or any of that sort of thing. Uh, it's just that these three universities have, uh, I, I guess, through good politics, through um, being in the right place at the right time to get things done, they've gotten special attention uh, as our three flagship colleges in these in the state. Okay, so uh, so we pop we elect these three schools uh, boards on a statewide vote, and you know popular votes. They're very democratic. Everybody likes them in theory, but there are some associated problems with them. Um, let's run through a few of these. Right. So the first, first one is what we call voter fatigue or, or voter drop-off as you go down the ballot. For anyone who's ever voted, you know, you show up and the first thing you'll vote on, on a, at a general election will be the president or the governor. And then you go through our congressmen, our state senators, and then the state houses, um, and you slowly work your way down. Uh, and so how much is the typical voter going to know about all the candidates that they have to vote on? Probably not very much by the time you get down Probably, to, the, to it, the boards of governors. It takes a very engaged voter. It takes hard work to go through and learn about these people and see how their positions align with what you feel as, as an informed voter. So we find that further down the ballot you go, the fewer people are voting. Uh, that's the voter fatigue that they're just saying, forget it, I'm done. I voted on the top positions that matter to me. Um, I'm going to move on. The other uh, thing that we see is sort of the long ballot. Uh, the Michigan's ballot is, is much longer than a lot of other places because we vote on so many... Uh, so many different offices, voting on judges, voting on ballot issues, voting on city councils and city uh, school boards and everything on and on. Um, and that just creates a very complicated nature. We also have straight ticket voting in Michigan. Right, straight party. Uh, so I'm going to go in, I'm going to check one box for a Republican or check another one for the Democratic Party. And everyone associated with those parties throughout the whole ballot gets your vote, and you don't have to know about them. Um, but what are we really voting on then? Are we really voting on the person, or are we voting on an idea? 
and and the idea of holding somebody accountable for what they do in office is lost in that case because we're just voting on on the ideal, not on right. actual performance. And and this is also a case where the nominees for these positions are partisan. I mean, you would you would not necessarily think that being on the board of, of governors of a major university should be a Republican or Democratic thing, but these are um, these are people who are nominated by the party con- individual party conventions, right? The state party conventions. Right. Uh, so we know that they have to be pretty well connected to be nominated by their party. Uh, and then we as voters have very little say on who we're voting for. People aren't... Um, There's no primary for the, for, the, <laughs> for the U of M Board of Governors or MSUs. Right. So it just... Um, while voting is clearly the most democratic way we can do things, when you dig below the surface and start getting into this... Democracy isn't really shining through our election of uh, school board members, university right. board members. Right, exactly. But, you know, as you uh, have pointed out, appointed boards aren't necessarily the answer either. And what are some of the problems with people who are appointed by the governor, which, by the way, is also something, a reform that some people in Lansing are pushing um, in the wake of this MSU scandal? Right. So you think about who is the governor, not anything about this governor, any governor. Who are they going to appoint? They're going to appoint people that they're familiar with who are politically connected in some way. So we haven't escaped that part of it in any way. And when you think about the issues of accountability, uh, how is that person, if, if they do things on the board, if they're making decisions that we feel are adverse to us as a state or adverse to that particular institution, how are we ho- holding them accountable for their actions? The governor has rarely, if ever, been held accountable for the actions of people he appoints on any board. Uh, so it just further diffuses the lines of accountability through appointment. And uh, yes, it's simpler. Yes, there's more accountability, you could say, to that institution that exists in Lansing. But ultimately, we look at accountability to the people, not to that right. little entity that exists in Lansing. Exactly. And I, I think you also pointed out that, that many of the people who end up getting these appointments in the past have been just another version of the party, the, the well-connected party people who end up getting nominated to the elected boards, which is, you know, they, they are um, term-limited um, legislators who are looking for the next gig, Something right. like that. Sort of the golden parachute. They're, yeah, exactly. Term limited out as legislators or they're done being in, involved and now they can spend their golden years still being somewhat active, but on a much more relaxed way out of the public eye. Right. Um, it's kind of like being ambassador of to a kind of inconsequential nation. <laughs> <laughs> which it, is which is not to say that the schools are inconsequential, but it's it's that kind of sweetheart deal, I, yes. I believe. So, okay, all right. So let's talk briefly about um, the other thing about Michigan schools that is uh, different, which is their constitutional auto- autonomy. Now, for any reform to um, pass in Lansing, uh, the constitution would have to be amended, which takes uh, that autonomy away from these schools. Now, it's it's really easy to think of good reasons to keep these schools autonomous. 
Um, you won't have a legislature fiddling around with your curriculum. You know, you won't. I mean, because the winds of change blow through these through our legislature pretty often. And, you know, you might have a, a constituency that doesn't want you teaching about, you know, gay literature or, or something on the other side. So, I mean, that's, that's a good reason for that. But it also creates inefficiencies, which is something that you talked about early on. I mean, we think of universities, they're publicly funded. Um, we think of them as public resources. But how can these... I mean, what are some of these inefficiencies that we are experiencing here in Michigan because we don't have clearer oversight? You know, so let's start with the idea of constitutional autonomy and what the courts have said over the years as they've looked at this. And again, this goes back to the 1850s. So there's a long history of the, of the universities being autonomous from the state. And the courts, when this has been challenged, have said, by we the people adopting a constitutional with these provisions, we have set these three universities up to a level commensurate with the legislature and the governor. They don't answer to the legislature and the governor. They are at a level equal to them. Uh, so they have the ability to determine everything that they need to determine as it relates to their own universities uh, yes, they get funding from the state, but when the state tries to put provisions in uh, that, that their funding that has certain things that the university has to do to get that money, it is up to the universities to decide if they want to take the money or not. There's consequences to that, clearly, sure. uh, but they can decide not to take it, and, and that is their autonomous right to do that. So... This goes a lot deeper than just should we elect them or should we appoint them. Uh, once you start stop electing them, now you've taken away their autonomy. There's some good things that go with that, that they've been able to clearly create the University of Michigan as one of the uh, one of the best public universities in the state. Michigan State University is... In the country. Uh, right, in the country. I'm <laughs> as sorry. a U of M parent, I feel I have to point that out. <laughs> well, and, and Michigan State is the, one of the best land-grant colleges in the country. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Wayne State University is striving to be one of the best urban colleges in the country. Um, it has the Another resources, school, the, the right. ability to do the, the many things. Um, but there are downsides, too. Now, your question... Where are those inefficiencies? Well, how many schools of uh, some particular sort of engineering or how many schools of education do we or need? Medicine, medicine. Or medicine. It right. goes on and on and on where you go to other states that have these sort of boards that I mentioned at the outset, and those boards are saying we're going to have one of those schools at this campus in this corner of the state, and we'll put other schools, other academic programs at a different campus, and however students decide to pursue their academic interest, that will decide which campus they go to. They don't have a whole menu of 15 colleges teaching the same things, and now it's up to them how they much like, they like that college life and how far it is from home or all these other things. So we've built in inefficiencies. We've built in duplication by having the sort of autonomy built into our Constitution. Right. And as we talk about things like economic development, um, and job training, this is, um, you know, this is an issue that, uh, that comes up, you know, over and over again. You know, how do we best educate the young people of Michigan or the, you know, the, the people returning to uh, school for a job change? How do we best educate them 
um, is this is this the best way to do it? So, right. So, I read an article last week from Ohio where they are putting together their Department of Education, their Department of Higher Education, and their workforce development uh, agencies into one entity. And so, when you start thinking about what these other states are doing, there's a clear pre-K through 14 or 16 or whatever, grade 16, uh, a clear line of continuum and a ability to work together so that what you're teaching in kindergarten enhances what's being taught in the fifth grade, leads to somebody in high school, leads to their ability to go to college, and then the ability to enter the workforce. Uh, all of them working together, all of them on a... Um, clear continuum of how education can develop in Michigan with that autonomy while we clearly have that pre-K through maybe the community colleges uh, to some extent it really gets lost when we start talking about the universities and their independence it's up to them whether they want to work with the school districts up to them how much they want to work with the state on workforce development and a lot of other things. Right. And we hope they'll make good decisions that way. But, you know, again, there's no uh, there's no way to be absolutely sure. No. So, okay. Fascinating discussion. Eric, thank you for stopping down from your office. And we'll talk next time. The Research Council released its first full-length research paper of the year in February. It's about local option taxation in Michigan. Now, tax policy can be pretty dry, so let's start by explaining why we undertook this project. I'm joined right now by Jill Roof, who is the researcher who did most of the work on this piece, um, who is going to explain how and why we went about this. Um, Jill, the local governments in Michigan have been under severe financial strain ever since the financial crisis gutted their revenues. Um, why don't you just briefly explain how and why that happened? Sure. Um, thank you. Um, the local governments have been under severe fiscal pressure um, since basically the Great Recession, what we call, which was went from about December 2007 to June 2009, where local property tax revenues declined dramatically. Um, this period also followed Michigan's, what we call Michigan's single state recession, um, which lasted most of the decade from 2000 up until the, the start of our Great Recession, where the rest of the nation suffered a minor recession in 2001, but Michigan, um, it was the beginning of Michigan's single state recession. Right. Um, so these affected property taxes because with the financial crisis and the real estate collapse, um, it led to severe declines in property values in Michigan, which lead to declines in property tax revenue for local governments. The bigger problem for local governments is due to the property tax limitations that have been passed into law over the last 40 years, um, namely the Headley Amendment and Proposal A of 1994. Um, right, which, which stipulates that your taxes can only rise at the rate of inflation or is it 3%? It's 5%, 5%, but I don't whichever think Whichever is lower. And it's since never in, meant that 5% level, I don't think. Yeah, and since inflation has been very low the last few years, um, that, meant, that means that, that revenues cannot recover 
at anywhere close to the same rate that they declined. So they can go back, you know, as much mm-hmm. as your property values declined, but they can only recover at the rate of inflation. Yes. Right. Um, yes. They can decline quickly, dramatically, um, with a decline in the economy, but as the economy expands, they can only rise at the rate of inflation. Right. Which was a, you know, that was probably a common sense reform uh, back in the 70s when, in the 80s, when um, um, property values were skyrocketing and we heard about people on fixed incomes being, you know, taxed out of their homes and that sort of thing. So, but, you know, nobody ever really figured that um, we would we would go through this collapse like happened in the in the uh, mid in 2009 2008 2009 and after that yes yeah yeah so, now I, I I think I remember reading somewhere that um, the at this at this rate of inflation you know a predictable um, inflation for the next few years that that revenues will not recover to their pre-2009 levels until something like 2020-something? 20, 20 I don't know. I, I don't recall the exact date. Do you know that by any chance? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know the exact date, um, okay. but I do know that from, you know, if we look at from like 2007 to 2013-ish, revenues declined I would say about 23%. And while the property values have risen since that time, close to 20%, taxable value has only grown at a third of that rate. Right, right. Because of the limitations. Right, right. Okay. So at times like this, um, you know, cities still have all the things that they spent money on prior to 2009, um, you know, roads, bridges, infrastructure, mm-hmm. so forth. Um, it would be nice to have a few more choices for raising money. Um, and this is what this paper is about, is the, um, the local option tax revenue or tax picture in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And what did you find? Um, well, we looked at what other states do um, as far as local option taxes. And most other states allow their local units to levy many more local option taxes than Michigan does. Um, before I get into that, I do want to mention really quick, the other big issue that has affected local government revenues over the years are um, state revenue sharing. Right. So those dollars, most local governments in Michigan rely on property tax revenues and state revenue sharing. And um, since, oh goodness, um, about 1998, revenue sharing funding losses total over $8 billion to local units. Wow. So that contributes. um, That's a big problem too. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So um, we, in this research, we looked in depth at what other states across the nation are doing in terms of local taxation. Um, so, you know, you can look at our report to get the details on what different states do, but just some general highlights. Um, income taxes are authorized, local income taxes in 18 states. Um, local sales taxes are authorized in 37 states. So that's a big one that Michigan um, local governments do not have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, motor fuel vehicle related taxes are, um, authorized in 37 plus states at the local level or state uh, revenues are shared directly with local units. Mm -hmm. Um, other taxes that are authorized across the states include alcohol taxes, um, cigarette, uh, medical marijuana, casino gambling, uh, what we call tourism type taxes on hotel motels, um, car rentals, restaurant meals, um, 
some states allow local units to levy what are called entertainment or amusement type taxes. So on like concert or sporting events or skiing or bowling, um, things like that. And and um, these are all things that Michigan does not allow its local units to assess. For the, for the most part. Yes. There are some exceptions. Um, local units, cities in Michigan are allowed to level, uh, to levy income taxes, city uh-huh. income taxes. Um, only 23 cities currently do. Um, some, there's a few different state laws that allow selected cities and counties across the state to level, levy um, tourism-related taxes, hotel, motel, car rental, um, things like that, but they're not broadly authorized. And those, the ones that are, the counties and cities that are allowed to um, levy them, therefore convention centers or tourism-related expenses, um, not for to support cities or county general funds. I see. Um, so, so I, I think you know anybody who travels knows that when you um, go online to book your hotel and you get a rate. Um, if it's a city of any size or consequence, something like New York or Chicago, you know that you're going to be paying quite a bit more than that for the rate by the time or by for the room by the time you you check out because you not only will have like local sales taxes and state sales taxes, there's also things like you know room taxes. Um, mm-hmm. It's a great way for a city that has a lot of tourism to kind of extract a little bit of money from people who are visiting um, and take the burden off of of local residents. Um, so, you know, if Traverse City wanted to pass a restaurant or a lodging tax to capitalize on its, uh, you know, status as a, a big tourism destination and then use that money to fix the roads that are, after all, you know, being used by these same tourists, they can't do that? No. Um, no. It, okay. Like I said, there are... Some local cities and counties that can levy like a tax on hotels for limited purposes, but broadly speaking across the state, no, cities, counties um, cannot choose to authorize or to levy a hotel tax or a restaurant meal tax to raise funds to support their budget for roads or um, multiple things that tourists and others coming into their cities are are using, services they are using. Um, For that to happen... Any local tax, any local government that wants to levy a tax, um, it needs to be authorized in state law. Right. So for Traverse City or any city or county, there needs to be a state law passed that says cities, counties can levy, are authorized to levy a restaurant tax or a, you know, a 1% tax on restaurant meals, for example. Um, and then if the state law was passed, that doesn't mean that... Uh, a city council could just implement the tax. It means that then they could um, put the put it to the voters. It still would have to pass local voters by the, be passed by the local voters before it could be um, levied. Sure. Right, of course. Um, now, I used to live in Indiana, and I remember what happened when um, the uh, city council of the city that I lived in, which in, which included two medical doctors, voted to ban cigarette smoking in restaurants. Um, there was a big hubbub about this, and one of the big arguments was, well, you're just going to encourage local restaurants who, you know, who or people who want to open restaurants to do so outside the city limits, you know, because there was also a growing county, um, suburban county, 
So, and that's an argument, I mean, that's, that's not a bad argument because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's easy to, if you've got a tax in one jurisdiction to sidestep it by just, um, you know, moving or locating just outside that jurisdiction. So one of the things that's in this report is a discussion of regional taxation and why it might be a better fit for local option taxes. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. Um, Yeah, we talk about in the report, you know, for the most part, cities and townships, the most local level of government are the primary providers of local services in Michigan, but they are the least well suited to impose local taxes because, as you said, you know, if there's a local sales tax in one city, um, it is not that hard to do your shopping in a neighboring city or township. Um, So, you know, we found a number of reasons that imposing taxes at the most local level is not the most um, efficient or best way to do it. Um, They can also um, increase competition among local units, um, you know, intensify economic disparities across local units. So some local units have more taxing potential than other local units. Um, So if you do, if you tax at the regional level, a lot of these concerns can be addressed. So we're looking at, you know, like a county would be a a small region. The state's already divided into counties Uh across the state. Um, These regions still compete with each other, but it's more difficult for individuals or businesses to leave a region than it is to just go to the next closest neighboring unit of local government. Also, counties and regions are made up of high-income and low-income local units, so it promotes a form of tax-based sharing that benefits the entire state. Um, So the biggest problem with leveling local taxes at the regional level is that most services are still provided at the local level. Um, You know, our report looks at, discusses this and kind of connects it with a report we did last year in 2017, which recommended reorganizing local government service delivery model to allow counties to provide more services at the regional level. And this, these two reports can go together and this can be done in conjunction with restructuring the local revenue Uh structure. Um, Another option too is you could, collect or levy these local taxes um, countywide or regionwide and then create a system for distributing the revenue among local units to kind of um, lessen some of the negatives associated with local taxation. Right. Right. Just a way to make the whole operation move and, and work a lot more efficiently. Yes. In general. So, okay. This report is available as always on our website, crcmich.org. We also have a brief op-ed explaining it in um, the Detroit News. Uh, we'll include a link to that on our website as well if you don't have time to um, read the whole thing. Jill, thank you very much for joining me today and explaining all of this to our listeners. Thank um, you. Have a wonderful day over there in West Michigan. That will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Remember, the CRC operates as a public resource, and all of our papers, along with blogs, op-eds, and other resources, are available for download on our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit through the generosity of Michigan's corporations, foundations, and individuals like you. 
If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmish.org, and click on the contribution button on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to crcmish at crcmish.org. I'm Nancy Derringer. Thanks for listening.